Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Today with me, John Boots. John is an old friend and I'm excited to have him here. He is the founder of Expedition Group, a Nashville-based real estate services firm. He has an extensive background in real estate, private equity, structured finance, and bank regulation, which is the reason I got you to come on here. We are recording this in April of 2023. The fallout of SVB occurred about, gosh, six weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago. And before we went live, we're going to get into your background and why it's germane to this conversation. I do want to kind of get into a little bit of, of what happened, but more importantly, just from a regulatory and a policy standpoint, how people should be thinking about the fallout from SVB, what this means for the banking regulatory landscape in America today, and, and what should we be looking for moving forward so that we can get back to some kind of semblance of trust with the banking world that that underpins everything in our economy. So with all that, could you maybe give a bit of a deeper background on yourself and and why you do have this experience that is pertinent for this conversation? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me and uh, appreciate the intro and the opportunity to come and, and speak. It's a interesting topic for sure. And yeah, my experience with the financial sector dates back to 2008. That's when I graduated with a finance MBA and started job hunting right after, you know, Bear Stearns or in the midst of Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, those very noteworthy collapses. So not a great time to have that degree or that skill set. Lots of layoffs. I ended up getting my best and really only job offer came from the FDIC. And so they wanted me to move across the country to Phoenix to become a bank regulator. And so what that actually 
did is sent me right into the heart of that crisis. So in 2007, eight, you saw a lot of bank failures start happening on the West Coast, and then it gradually progressed East. So I was right in the middle of it, in the thick of it in 2009. Spent a lot of time in Phoenix, a lot of time in Las Vegas, which were two hotbeds of speculative mortgage lending and real estate lending. And you could drive around both of those cities and just see shells of neighborhoods, shells of commercial properties that were never finished because they were foreclosed or whatever had happened. Lots of different resolutions for troubled loans at that time. But so I did that for a year, examined banks. It was awful. I became like the most critical person in the world. I was a negative Nancy everywhere I went. Uh, sorry to all the Nancys out there. And I said, I like the FDIC. I like what I'm doing in concept. But I don't, I don't want to be like going into banks as a 25-year-old kid, basically telling these 30-year industry veterans that they sucked at their jobs. So I was like, what do I do? So I got the opportunity to move to Dallas. And in the FDIC, there's a department called uh, Resolutions and Receiverships. And that's the group that actually handles all of the bank failures, including the one that you kind of opened the show talking about, Silicon Valley Bank. They are the ones that are appointed receiver. And so from a news perspective, you see that headline, a bank fails, especially a bank the size of SVB or Signature Bank, People, people's eyes open up wide. But realistically, there's lots and lots of work happening way before that happens, that event on a Friday afternoon usually. And then sometimes like the tail work can go on for a decade. So that division obviously has a lot of important functions and it really acts as like the business arm of the FDIC. So we would take on all of those failed bank assets, which are usually loans, distressed real estate that the bank owned, usually had foreclosed on from borrowers that had failed to pay. And then we would re-market those back to the private markets. So I did that for about four years, uh, worked in asset sales, worked in the real estate department, managing and selling real estate, managing and selling loans through asset sales and got a ton of exposure to, that's where I learned about structured finance, private equity, the FDIC. A lot of people don't realize the FDIC conducts a lot of private equity style business by packaging loans into a special purpose entity, much like you or I use for our real estate deals and then selling pieces of those entities to investors, use promote structures. I mean, very similar to most private equity deals. So did that for four years, learned a lot, realistically was involved in transactions over $2 billion, mostly in big loan portfolios, a few real estate sales, but got to travel the country, go to all these different places where banks had failed, actually went in and did the bank takeovers in a few instances. I think I was on 15 bank closings during that time frame. So sometimes I was the guy that was there on Friday at 4.45 p.m. walking in with a team to take the charter off the wall and tell the president or CEO that he or she was no longer an employee and that the bank had been uh, taken over by its regulator and the FDIC was there to transition it to usually a new bank owner. So lots of work, very interesting time. Yeah, it's incredible. And I want to rewind the tape and unpack what you all said. So maybe from a starting point, what is the FDIC and what is its mandate? Yeah. So it's interesting. Guys like us tend to not like regulation. It gets in the way of the things that we're trying to accomplish professionally, not to 
put it all on you, but uh, I think that's a pretty safe generalization. In our industry, the FDIC is arguably one of the most important regulatory entities in the world. And it was created in response to the Great Depression, where that was the kind of the, I, I wouldn't call it the original bank run scenario, but it was where people saw literal lines of depositors trying to yank all of their money out of a bank that they knew was in rough shape so that they didn't lose their funds. And so the FDIC was created, I believe in 1933 to insure deposits. So that's the, the first and foremost function of the FDIC. But of course, with that comes a lot of attachments, we'll say. And so I mentioned I was a bank examiner. There's the risk management division, which makes sure that banks are operating with safe and sound risk management practices. I'm sure we'll get more into that on SVB case specifically later in this. But there was the division that I mentioned, resolutions and receiverships, where I spent most of my time. And they're the ones that when a bank fails, they handle all of it. You know, the hot button item with this bank was the deposit, how many uninsured deposits there were. There's a specific department of resolutions and receiverships called claims that usually handles uninsured deposits and any Think of it like a bankruptcy estate, any claims against the failed bank as an entity. So, and then there's insurance and research, but yeah, the FDIC, I think currently supervises, I can't remember the number that I saw uh, this week. I want to say it's about 4,000, 5,000 banks in this country. And there are other regulators too, like the Federal Reserve has oversight over certain banks, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, but the FDIC is probably the most prominent one because of the the deposit insurance offering, which is really what enables the banking system to work. Right. Because, and you reference this, right? The classic bank runs that occurred in the early 20th century after the Great Depression, they created this regulatory entity to prevent those from occurring. You kind of think of like, it's a wonderful life, the Bailey building and loan. Yeah. You know, like the it. classic bank run. And that's really was set into hyperspeed with Silicon Valley Bank because of social media and all these other things. But right. you know, fundamentally, same setup, right? And, and it has many different tasks, but the main one is this insurance product that you discussed. In 2008, it's implicit to say this: the housing market blew up. Could you maybe juxtapose what the banking regulatory oversight ecosystem looked like then versus now? And, and what, like... Acutely, it was the housing market, but there there were systemic issues that caused a lot of those banks to fail, right? Yeah. It's difficult to put them side by side with my current perspective being limited by the fact that I've been out of the FDIC for you know now almost 10 years, or really more like nine years. But I can say this pretty safely. When banks are making money, and when they're very profitable, it's very hard for regulators to tell them no. That is a massive generalization, but you get my point. When you're making money, you're adding to your capital stack. You are safeguarding yourself against all of the things that come to light when we see a bank failure. And so, you know, leading up to 2008, banks were super profitable. You mentioned kind of in the intro, the Trump rollback of regulations that had happened, I want to say in 2000, in the early 2000s at some point, which kind of created the atmosphere that allowed for the rampant subprime mortgage lending, speculative lending on housing developments, on commercial real estate, primarily those two areas. And then, of course, there was the, the synthetic product creation derivatives that were based on 
ratings of things that were also falsified or were essentially paid for. You know, you probably read a lot about how S&P and Moody's were stamping AAA ratings on mortgage-backed securities that were collateralized by subprime mortgage loans. So yeah, there was a lot of that going on and it tended to be concentrated in certain places like California got hit really hard right off the bat. But the two states that I worked in, Nevada and Arizona, both also saw a lot of that speculative real estate lending. So all that is to say, yeah, there were systemic issues then. I think now we've seen a period of major profitability. In fact, I saw reports on a couple of the big banks, their earnings calls this week were reporting all-time high profits. So that gives you a sense of where we are in the banking sector in terms of profitability. And then also tying that back to my point, how regulators have been, I would call it hamstrung from being able to tell banks to stop doing things because the things that they're doing have been working. Then you introduce a whole lot of interest rate hikes and things look very different in a short order. And that's kind of where we are now. So yeah, I would say that regulation probably looks a lot like it did leading up to the the great financial crisis. But yeah, the, the rollbacks that happened in the last few years certainly enabled, well, I don't know, we'll get into that more, I, I suppose. But yeah, I, I would say it was probably pretty similar. Right. I mean, you get this vision of a cycle, right? Where under certain administrations, banking regulations get tighter, then they yes. get more accommodative and permissive and things prop up. And, and typically there's a lag, right? So an administration does some things Five, 10 years later, those seeds that were planted come to fruition and you have some challenges. And so it seems like the writing was on the wall, but until something falls apart, you don't really know. My, my, I guess my question is, when you got in and you were in the epicenter of a lot of this in Vegas and Phoenix, right? I mean, they were the, as you said, the hotbeds of the housing crisis. Do you think it was the banks being bad actors the lack of regulatory oversight or a combination thereof? Sure. Well, a little kind of inside baseball, the FDIC uses a rating system for every bank it evaluates and it's called CAMELS and that's capital asset quality management, which is, you know, a more subjective look at how the management team is handling the bank earnings, liquidity, and then sensitivity to interest rate risk. And so a lot of the banks that you saw in my area of practice were the scale goes from one to five. One is like, you're doing everything perfectly. We can't do anything. We can't tell you to change anything. Five is you're probably closing next week, basically to oversimplify. We had a lot of very low performing banks in our supervisory area. And obviously that is a confidential, a rating is a confidential item. It's not, it's never supposed to leave the discussion between the FDIC or the supervisor and it's in the bank. So but you get the point. Like a lot of banks were underperforming. And it, and so when a bank failed, we would always do a postmortem and look at what the causes for failure were. And so obviously when you look at that rating system, asset quality was, was usually the main reason. So if you had massive exposure through concentrations of real estate loans to especially like housing in markets like those, then that was a, that was a reason a lot of banks failed. And if you think about it, like you, you said something that I think is very true. Regulation is cyclical. So are, you know, decisions that businesses make in mass are also kind of cyclical and there's very much a herd mentality. Bankers are close to each other. And so when one banker sees bank A and call it 
you know, California making loans to subprime borrowers, but charging them a much higher interest rate than they can charge for, you know, credit worthy borrowers and then making a better interest spread, then maybe banker B sees that and says, oh man, we could, we could really learn from that. And so there certainly were bad actors in the mix. Like there were quite a few banks that closed that we decided closed because of fraud. But generally, I think the stat was that in most bank failures, I think fraud was only existent in like 10% of them or 9% of them. And this is based on data that I saw when I was in training there years and years ago. And even less frequently was it the actual cause for the failure. So, you know, those two things can coexist and one may not be correlate to the other in terms of why this actually happened. So I think there were systemic issues because there were a lot of people that saw the profitability of subprime lending because banks don't make much money on the, the net interest margin is how you know how you calculate a bank's general profitability and it's usually around three percent that's that's pretty thin so they've, they've got to get creative at times so yeah i think regulatory oversight was obviously limited by how banks performed up to the point when they couldn't perform anymore and then you saw a massive downfall in the housing market you know values plummeted which meant that borrowers were underwater but I mean, I can tell specific anecdotes about banks that I saw very fraudulent practices like the, you know, what we called the ninja loan, the no income, no job or assets. And I went to one bank after it had failed. Uh, it was in Santa Monica, actually. And we, we went to an Iron Mountain warehouse full of, you know, those old fashioned banker boxes. And each one had hundreds of loan files in it. And we were trying to establish, we had a unit called investigations, which looked for fraud right? Look to find ways to recuperate, to recoup money back to the FDIC after it paid out these depositors in a loss scenario. And I remember going through probably in a week's time, really, really sexy work, probably about 500 of those boxes, just file by file, looking at every loan. And it was the same case every single time. These, these ninja loans, there were no income, no assets. There was stated income, stated assets. And sometimes you could tell that the person that filled out the application was the loan officer and not the actual borrower. But I mean, you saw, I saw in one instance, this one really resonated with me because it was just like, at that time, it was a dollar amount that fixed in my head, a million dollar house loan to a person with no income, no job or no assets. So obviously someone created that model. That person was the bad actor. I do think there was fraud at that bank specifically. I don't remember the name of the bank, but that was a, you know, but then you had other people just trying to replicate that profitability model, which became unsustainable because it was, you know, it was based on, on bad information or no information. Yeah. It seems like, and even in today's world with Silicon Valley Bank and Republic, a constellation of issues that are triggered by one acute challenge, right? Depending on what exposure they have on the loan side. And so this kind of pivots to, and maybe this is a good time to get into it, given your experience both on the on the regulatory side and now as an entrepreneur who does real estate, I'm not sure many people understand this, but the US is an anomaly in that we have, I think you said like 14,000 banks or something. We have a huge amount of banks and many of them are small and medium sized, whereas most countries have you know, three to five main lenders and they're highly regulated, highly scrutinized, right? If you think about Western Europe, there's really only a couple of players in that space. Whereas it seems like America has decided from a policy standpoint, 
that these small and medium-sized banks are good for the economy and good for the general public to have access to. That is, I think, cuts the other way of this concept that the FDIC insurance program only goes to a certain amount, is not full-blown across all accounts. What Do you have an opinion on what the policy should be in terms of should we have all of these small and medium-sized banks in the lending environment, or should we encourage M&A and, and aggregation and consolidation within the banking industry itself? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it becomes a bit of a chicken-egg argument, right? If you get rid of small banks through consolidation, through policy changes that encourage that, however it happens, through failures because of deposit runs, whatever the scenario is, will the big banks then pick up the slack and make the loans they haven't been making, which is why the small banks still exist. I saw that you had, you know, that your your team had just closed a deal. Congratulations on that. I, I don't know the details, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and guess that you probably worked with a community bank to get the deal done. Correct. Yeah. And so right now as real estate investors, as someone that works with developer clients who are trying to create value in communities, we are up against the wall. Nobody wants to lend and they certainly don't want to lend at levels that really encourage what I would even still consider to be very good deals to get done. So I'm a firm believer that community banks have an important place in the world. I think I see the, you know, I was reading this morning that I think Canada has for its entire population, only about three dozen banks. And so I think the stat that they showed was that Canada has, I think they said 17 banks per trillion dollars of GDP. And by contrast, I think we have something like, what it was the stat, 200 banks per trillion dollars of GDP. So it's a very different look here to your, to your point. But I think that this country is built on the idea of, you know, chasing the American dream creating your own path. You know, you think of how the settlement of this country happened from, we won't get into that, but, you know, people just trailblazing across the country, finding gold, you know, looking for opportunity, creating new ideas. And I think this is a country that really favors and encourages entrepreneurship. So if you remove small banks from the mix, it's going to be hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to get small businesses off the ground. I realize the SBA exists, but a lot of people go to their local community bank to get those SBA loans, or they know the founder of the bank because their families have been friends for 30 years. So when they have a new idea, which a normal bank, a large bank wouldn't touch, the small banks are the ones that say, you know what, we know you, we believe in you, we're willing to take this risk with you. And of course there's consideration that goes both ways, but I'm a firm believer that community banks need to be a part of the fabric of our economy, just based on my experiences. And, and certainly that stems back to the FDIC and seeing how integral they were then. And then now working with them almost exclusively at a time like this, seeing how integral they are now. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think going back to my law school years, understanding that the ability to own real estate 
outright fee simple as a private individual and then being able to use credit to leverage that real estate to go out and do whatever with that capital is the underpinning of the entire economy for the US. And if you take away these community banks and you're left with the big Wall Street groups, I mean, a lot of people are just going to be cut out of the deal on that. And it's going to create massive inequality, even more so than we have today. And so I agree with you. So from a policy standpoint, I think we're on the same page. But then wouldn't that rationally lead to the government backing all deposits outright, as opposed to having a limit on them? Yeah, I think rationally, interesting word choice. But yeah, I I agree with that. At the same time, I don't think that that's how the FDIC should work. And then obviously, one of the things that makes the FDIC unique, and I don't know how many people realize this, there's a lot of misinformation that's been circulated post Silicon Valley Bank. You know, people call it a bailout. I think I've even used that word, to be fair, of the depositors there. Well, the truth is the FDIC makes its money by charging banks for that deposit insurance that we talked about earlier. And all of the funds that the FDIC makes go into what's called the deposit insurance fund, the DIF. And that's where the payouts for uninsured depositors or any cost that comes from a bank failure, that's where they come from. So it operates like a business and it is 100% factually accurate to say that it has never relied on taxpayer assistance, not once in its history. So it is a governmental agency, but it operates on its own because of that funding mechanism and that structure. So obviously to provide unlimited deposit insurance would require them to raise their premiums substantially, which could become problematic for small banks. I think realistically what should and will happen, I, I, I'm guessing within the next year, is that the deposit insurance limit is going to be raised and that there may be tweaks. For example, like one of the big concerns coming out of SVB was all the payroll accounts that these startups and tech companies had. As a business owner, you understand it doesn't really make sense to be bouncing your payroll account, however large it swells to, from bank to bank when you know every two weeks or whatever your pay structure is that funds got to come out so that your your people can get paid. It makes perfect sense for it to be at one bank, right? Even if you're a Roku and who knows what their payroll was, but they had 500 million in deposits with the bank. So yeah, I think it makes sense to keep it in place. But you know, realistically, that's not that's what not what most of America would be dealing with. Is 500k the right number to raise it to? probably, and then make exceptions for payroll accounts and fully insure those. I I do like they figured this out in the past. I think it was around the time that I started working there that the deposit insurance limit raised from 100,000 to 250. And so now raising it again, especially after all the inflation that we've been experiencing and effective devaluation of our dollar through that, I think it makes perfect sense to do that as a a short-term action step. Yeah, I mean, I'm speaking way outside of school, and I deferred you. It seems like a reasonable way to move forward, at least proposition-wise. Raise the limit, make certain exceptions, exemptions based on how these people use it. And another thing I'll just add to your commentary that I don't think many folks understand is we use real estate because that's my world. But when I get a loan from a bank right, for a new acquisition, and I have my operating account, treasury management accounts... There are covenants, typically covenants in the loan agreements that require me to use the bank that lends me the money to have all of my operating accounts run through that. And so when an investor or somebody says, well, why did you have that much capital allocated 
beyond the insured amount. Yes, we understand it's it's a risk theoretically, but it's also a covenant that you would be in breach of if you were to have sweep accounts across multiple lenders. I feel for some of these entrepreneurs are getting crushed in the media. I'm sure their hands were tied. A lot of CFOs and COOs didn't have any other optionality. I would suspect you're right without, of course, having gone back to an Iron Mountain warehouse full of Silicon Valley Bank loan documents. Haven't had that pleasure. Hopefully won't. I've made the same comment. One of my friends here is a market president for a large bank, and he and I had lunch recently. We were talking about this, and he said, yeah, there's no question that there were a lot of covenants in place. And realistically, their deposit share jumped very quickly over a short period of time. And that's almost certainly tied to just how much liquidity was in the market in general, quantitative easing, stimulus money, PPP loans, et cetera. I'm sure a lot of those companies benefited from that. And that's the thing, right? Like as a business owner, like you may have covenants tying accounts for deals to one bank, but you probably personally have a relationship with a bank that you use for most of your personal things. And when you're in the position that a lot of those folks were in, it's almost like a club, right? I'm sure Silicon Valley Bank felt like a club. And that mentality is great at times. And then at times like this, when things start to look a little shaky, it gets very dangerous because then that club, obviously very well connected to each other, they, they sounded the alarms internally, which is why we saw the deposits run off after the bank made a, you know, a write down of some of its assets. So let's get into that. A lot of reasoning or we've, there's been a lot of media coverage about exactly why Silicon Valley Bank failed. Now that we can Monday morning quarterback it, could you sum it up for us? <laughs> it is probably an impossible task, but what actually went down? Yeah, it was an old fashioned, or I guess we should call it a new fashion deposit run. Twitter driven, you know, inside baseball, because like I said, you've got all these founders, many of whom were funded by the same VCs who saw the writing on the wall through the capital raise, the asset marked right down when they had to put some of those, you know, very undervalued securities into their uh, available for sale portfolio. So yeah, a bank run, I think is the imminent cause, but realistically the management did a horrible job of matching assets and liabilities. Like that's banking 101, right? You don't buy long-term treasuries at the interest rate floor and then have to pay deposits above that, you know, just to stay market competitive. So yeah, they did an abysmal job of that. I think that's the main reason the bank failed it. You look at their asset, their their asset quality. If anyone wants to go nerd out, you can go download a call report or what's called a UBPR, which is a uniform bank performance report. If you look through those documents, you can see where the trouble was. And the truth is there wasn't any. Their assets were all performing regularly. You know, most banks, not them, most banks probably have 60 to 70% of their assets concentrated in their loan portfolio versus their securities portfolio. So it was a very different story there, obviously. But yeah, when you've got all these treasuries that are losing value because interest rates are rising, if they hadn't had to sell any, they could have ridden this out for a while longer. But by having to sell some, they had to take a loss. By taking the loss, they decided they needed to raise capital. They were already probably arguably a little thin there. And then after that happened, you know, everybody sounded the alarms and just tweeted their way into a bank failure. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I was thinking about this, you know, the financial advisor I work with always talks about how it's not a loss unless you trade out of the position. 
And their hand was really, their hand was forced to incur these losses that otherwise they would have been able to ride out. And you think about these banks in Europe that were forced by the ECB to buy negative yielding bonds for a long time, you know, they would have been in a hurt locker if they were to have to go do something similar, right? It would have been even worse. And so it did happen really fast. So now that we're on the other side of this, you know, knock on wood, things seem to have settled out as of this recording. I mean, are you personally worried about other bank failures or challenges in the near term? Not really. I read a really good memo from Howard Marks at Oak Tree and very sharp guy. If I'm not mistaken, I think Oak Tree bought a lot of the distressed assets that came out of the last fallout. They did. Yeah. Pretty sure I saw their name on a couple of our larger structured sales, but you know, he's he's a seasoned investor. He has a lot of market experience and he made comments that he he argued that this was not a systemic issue. And I, I agree with his arguments that Silicon Valley Bank was a very unique bank. If SVB hadn't failed, would Signature Bank have failed? I don't know. Probably, maybe not. I don't know as much about that one to be honest. But then of course then you look at across the the pond at, at Credit Suisse and that was an isolated event in its own right. And so I think the bigger concern probably realistically lies in the the mortgage, the commercial mortgage markets that a lot of people are talking about now with the number of loans that will come due in the next three years, two to three years, and how a refinance scenario would most likely result in a lot of defaults and probably foreclosures, which could drive prices down. That's across several sectors. So the reality is though. Banks have the ability to modify loans and come up with creative ways to keep borrowers from going under because any well-run bank is going to know they can only mark down so many loans before it becomes a problem. That's obviously what we saw in 2007 to 2010. In this case, I'll be interested to see how it plays out, but for now, I don't see a whole lot of concern. So I do want to hear a commentary about this wall of refinancing that we have coming because you and I have a lot to say there. So just to... (laughs) To round this out, though, compared to 2008, you're you're not concerned about further bank failures, and you, you don't think this is going to be a retread from that perspective, in the banking sector at least. I don't see it happening the same way. I'm sure that here and there, a bank is going to fail. It happens. Part of, it's part of life. You know, businesses fail in general. Banks are not a, a, exempt from that. Like I said earlier, they're already operating on tight margins, so... I don't think there's a systemic issue. I will say regulatory oversight may have started to get more lax over the last few years, but a lot of lending standards were maintained since 2008 and a lot of banks got hammered because they were making these ultra risky loans. I do a lot of debt placement work for my own deals and mostly for client deals. And so I talk to banks frequently and generally understand what the market will yield on any kind of property that I'm working on. And I would just make the argument that banks have not been super frivolous with too many things. There are some, we both are in Nashville. There are some speculative real estate deals here, but I would say on the whole, there aren't that many. And, you know, you look at like multifamily, for example, there's still people moving here and there's a very well-documented shortage of homes, both single and multifamily. So there's need ultimately Obviously, if the economy slows down, absorption could also slow down. And of course, on the single family front right now, affordability is the hard part. So maybe you see prices decline 
on homes, but that would ultimately be good for people that have been squeezed out of the market. No one wants to lose equity in their home, myself included, but at the same time, it's not just about me. So yeah, I don't think there's a systemic issue this time around. Yeah, the refi thing is is going to be an interesting one to watch. Yeah. So one more commentary before we get to that. Yeah. It's really easy to kind of armchair quarterback things. I will say as a taxpayer and somebody that was around for 08, very impressed with how quickly the regulators moved on this, both here and in Europe. You, you mentioned the UBS Credit Suisse deal. It's scary when it's all going down, but I mean, this took place over a weekend basically. And, you know, I think compared to 08, where they did kind of too little and waited too long, they moved really quickly to respond to this. And, and they should get kudos because it was scary and it was a rough week or two, but they did prevent a larger fallout. And not everyone's going to agree with exactly what they did and how they did it, but it's no longer kind of top of the fold or front of the paper anymore. And I think things have really calmed down. So as a former state and federal employee, I don't think folks get enough credit for when they do the right thing. And I know you might have thoughts there, but I thought they did a decent job of addressing this. I, I agree with you. And, and I also agree that I don't agree with everything that happened. At the same time, though, they prevented the spread. You're absolutely right. Realistically, what, like I said, what brought that bank down in the immediate time was was the bank run. When you have no liquidity, you can't operate as a business, period. You have to have access to funds to operate because being operational costs money. So when their funds left, they were they were completely up a creek. So by containing that, but I guess my point in saying that is, you know, we witnessed that happen because of word of mouth, which is exactly how it happened back in the 30s. But it's accelerated now by the fact that we have all of this technology and can access our funds with our thumbs versus having to go stand in a line and write a ticket to deposit or to withdraw funds. So that's going to be one of the interesting pieces that comes out of this is how the regulators change their playbook. And then also will the country passed laws to prevent people from spreading information like this online. It looks similar to, you know, pump and dump kind of stock trading schemes, right? So obviously this had the, the opposite impact. It just drove a business down. But I mean, that, those, those, those schemes can work in the opposite way too. You depress the value of something you know, to capitalize on a short sale opportunity. So yeah, I think how the, how the regulators are empowered to try to respond to things like that going forward is the more is the most interesting question and then you know what what will our country do to prohibit you know tweeting banks gonna fail you know perception is reality and when enough people are convinced that something is going to happen it probably will happen so a more practical question you referenced some documents and some filings and some regulatory compliance forms but if you're listening to this and you work, or you bank at a small, medium-sized regional community bank, and you don't want to listen to the to the quarterly calls. I mean, are there questions you should ask, or things that you should track just to maintain, understand, like the overall health of that bank? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think banks, any any publicly traded bank, obviously is going to have a, a full earnings report. But for smaller banks, that's often not the case. A person can download, like I said earlier, what's called a call report. And, and you can see the percentage of tier one capital, which is kind of the, the benchmark capital assessment for how a bank's performing. And going back to my FDIC days, we really couldn't close a bank 
and I say we, you know, the regulator, whoever oversaw the bank couldn't close a bank until the tier one capital was around 2%. So most banks now are operating around 10%, which is healthy. So if you look across the sector, you'll see that I think, you know, asking questions like that and, and maybe doing a little bit of your own diligence is it's helpful, but realistically, very few banks are operating in an endangered capital position in this market. There are obviously exceptions and I couldn't begin to name them because I don't know, but just looking at banks here around Nashville, I, I looked at a few call reports after this happened, just out of curiosity. And I saw 8%, 11%, 13%. So that's a very, very healthy capital buffer that would insulate them from danger. I think really what it comes back to is like understanding if, if your concern is like, I don't want to lose my money that's in the bank, then if possible, don't put more money than the deposit insurance limit in any one account. If you have more money than that, chances are you probably have access to financial services providers who can help you manage that and would be knowledgeable about it. But, you know, self-awareness and, and just being having your own prudent risk management strategies for your money is probably the most important thing. And then, yeah, I think it does make sense to know how your bank's doing, but I don't think a lot of people are going to go down that road. Yeah, unfortunately, it's going to come down to educating yourself and because the we as a society and, and government don't do a great job of educating borrowers about what these different limits are. To your point, trust companies and financial services firms have different insurance products and opportunities to to cover these these issues. So I just encourage people to look into it, I guess. There's not really a one place, but that's helpful. As we kind of close this conversation up in the next 10 minutes, let's switch to our day jobs. You referenced this. I want to hear your opinion on it. We are entering into a pretty challenging refinancing environment where you and I both have or aware of assets that the deck got put on three, five years ago. It's coming to term or IO peers are burning off and you're going from things that were in the 4% range to what could be the 8% range. Or as I've experienced with one of our properties, the legacy office building that we own, you just get no bids from lenders. What do you, how do you see this playing out and you know, what should people do if they find themselves in this situation? Well, this is, this goes right back to the point of the importance of community banks. Having a, a conversation with your banker is the first starting. It's the first step. You need to be aware of when your debt is maturing and you need to go meet face to face if possible with your lender and say, Hey, I don't want to lose this property. Let's talk about what we can do to stay in this together because moving the debt right now is probably not going to be a realistic option. And who knows, in 2025, we could see interest rates back down a little bit. I think that's probably going to happen. But then again, the Fed has been very persistent with its policy on interest rates through this year. So it'll be interesting to see how long this prevails. But yeah, I think talking to your banker is the first thing. And if you don't have debt at a community bank, then just figure out who to talk to and, and go go meet with them and be real about it and try to, you know, Try to get a game plan together. Maybe if you can modify the loan versus going through a, a technical refinance, it's going to save you money. It's going to save the bank money and perhaps buys you more time until interest rates normalize a bit more. I think outside of that, in real estate, we love leverage. 
right? Because it reduces how much capital you put into a deal, which improves your profitability ultimately, unless something like this happens. So if you can reduce the amount of, if you can inject more cash in the deal, I think that that is a sign to a bank that you're willing to help and, you know, play ball. So maybe instead of taking, if you're like me, for example, and you've got a property that's cash flowing and you're able to distribute funds to yourself or your investors, perhaps reallocating some of that back to principal repayment so that you aren't underwater, that, you know, it all just comes back to risk management strategies. So I think realistically, it's kind of a wait and see thing because interest rates could come back down a little bit, but having a dialogue with your, with your lender is just really important. A lot of the, a lot of the loans that we saw go under, you know, the person would just walk. And if that's your strategy, then that's your choice. Is it morally correct? That's up to you to decide. But, you know, we see people walk, refuse to negotiate, talk to the lenders. Most lenders will work with their borrowers because they don't want to write off a whole bunch of loans. That's bad business. Yeah, I think being super proactive and communicative, both on the investor side and the borrower side, is the best thing that you can do. Going dark and kicking the can is not is not a strategy, Uh, but you see people do it for sure. And but to your point, you know, we hear all these conversations about office. It's challenging, and I don't think these lenders really want to get the keys back on all these office deals, right? So you know, get creative be open to communication. And I think at some point you would hope the regulators will give the borrowers or I'm sorry, the banks a little bit more leeway to, to help on those situations. There will be pain for sure, but going early and being proactive is the key. One final question before we wrap this, do you think now is the time to invest in private debt, opportunistic kind of Howard Mark style vehicles? Do you think we're there in the cycle? I don't think that we're there yet. I think if there's going to be a decrease in prices, it's probably in process or decrease in values. It's probably in process. And I doubt that we've bottomed. My dad's a financial advisor and he, he, he loves the phrase, don't ever try to catch a falling knife. Now that's a personal risk management decision. Really? You know, what is your tolerance? There's probably still money to be made. I I think there's still money to be made on like high quality performing deals that are new investments right now. And I think there will be opportunistic plays as well. You know, it just depends on every deal. So what's going to be interesting and what may prohibit a larger valuation fall is just the amount of money that's still sitting out there. So I think the opportunity is what you said is, is private, private lending because Real estate development, creating new properties, things like that, even just conducting business outside of bank terms, it's not going to just stop. It'll slow down, but there's still a lot of really good opportunities out there. So companies that can act like banks, but aren't banks, I think they have a really great opportunity in the next, call it one to two years. Yeah, I agree. John, thank you so much for joining us. You're an old friend. I appreciate you coming on and, and being a resource on this topic, which is fairly esoteric. There's not many people who have FDIC, bank examiner, real estate, <laughs> professional kind of profile that you do. If people are who are listening are interested in learning more about how you do work with real estate folks or just want to connect with you to learn more about your background, what's the best way for them to get connected with you? Yeah, I would say email. I don't know if you can post that or 
My company website is www.expeditiongroup.co. There's a contact form there. And then, of course, everyone's favorite modern social network, LinkedIn. I, I make an appearance on there pretty frequently. So maybe more lurking than posting, but <laughs> I'm there. So uh, if you reach out to me there, I'll find it. Yeah, and I, I can't. I don't know if your profile picture has the beard or not, but you you went no Civil War beard today. Sometimes you do <laughs> the Civil War beard. So, oh man, yeah, the the old days are gone. There's too much gray, too many yeah. too many things to worry about these days. Yeah, I understand. Please do leave a comment. Uh, let us know your favorite part of the conversation. Definitely encourage you to connect with John. He's an awesome guy. He can be a huge resource for you in the commercial real estate world. One final question: We ask people to come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Love it. Love it. I do. I have several, actually. Some of them are not daily, but weekly. But the daily ones, I try to work out six days a week. So that's if you round up, that's daily. I take five at some point in the day, oftentimes right before bed, to just go through a gratitude list in my mind. Things can be pretty tough in the world. We've had some We've had a couple tragedies here in the Southeast and Nashville specifically over the last month. And so taking time to appreciate what, what is good in life is, is restorative and grounding. So those two things, and then putting my phone away, try to put my phone away every night for a couple hours. Those things all add up quite a bit, I could say. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing, man. And thanks again for coming on. I'm sure I'll bump into you soon and take care. Yeah, can't wait. Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.